If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't, we have copies on the back table there, or hopefully you have a digital copy available, join us in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, towards the end of the Bible, about six books back from the end, I believe, it's a letter that Peter wrote to Christians who are scattered all over a place called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, they had a lot of things going on, as perhaps you do. A lot of difficulties, challenges, burdens. Although what was probably unique to this group is they did not have and enjoy the religious freedom that we do. They were actually kicked out of their homes, uh, fired or, or removed from their businesses, kicked out of Rome, and they scattered. They, they fleed the persecution, and they're settling in brand new communities Brand new churches forming up of people who have been displaced. And, and it's somewhat similar to our context. Living Hope Church is a brand new church plant. People from all over North Carolina and New Jersey and Wisconsin and all over. God has brought to this community for such a time as this uh, to, to reach people with the hope that is Jesus Christ. Um, but these people had little to nothing to go on. And so Peter writes to them a simple letter to encourage them. And I hope one of the things you're thankful for this morning is religious liberty. Um, but as we think about this wonderful season, this Thanksgiving season, I, I give thanks for the season of fall, how God is a God of seasons. Each one is different. And in the fall, there's a whole lot of things you get to enjoy that you don't at other times of the year. Now, particularly up in the Midwest, where we are from, not this place from, but where we have come from, uh, corn mazes and and festivals and pumpkin patches and all those things were in full swing go to the apple orchards there's a lot of really unique things about the fall season and one of the things that we like to do um, and, and still do if we find one down around here is to go through a corn maze well, we go through a corn maze and did you ever go through one of those do you enjoy those so you never know where the where the finish line is right you know how to find the start line no problem but making your way through the maze like what is going on here? What is the point? You have twists, you have turns, you have dead ends. You have to kind of stumble your way through and you're just looking, how do we find you know, that next challenge? We, we get that next uh, ticket or card or find that next person hiding in the maze and then we get to the exit. Now, if you went into that corn maze not knowing what you were getting into, you would think this corn maze was a little bit confusing, wouldn't you? And, and, and what's the point? Is the, is the whole point to get to the finish line? Then why this twist and turn? Why this bend? Why this dead end? But of course, you know what you're getting into. You know that someone has designed a special route in, in the cornfield. It either looks like a picture. Maybe it's a word that's spelled out. Um, but someone has come through with, with a combine, with a tractor, and they, they have plowed those paths for us. So you know, okay, there is a method to the madness. It's not just weaving just for its own sake. And I thought of a corn maze because I feel like that's a pretty good analogy for our life. The unbeliever, someone who does not know God, who does not know that God has a plan for them and has specifically realized and embraced that plan as revealed through Jesus Christ and the good news that he brings, you can go through life and, and say, what is the point? All this suffering, all this pain. In fact, that's usually what people say. There's no God there's no point to this. All this endless suffering. There's just, there's just no way that there's a God in heaven that there's a plan because it's just too crazy. There's too many twists and turns. So for our final message from 1 Peter on the identity of the church, who are we? Who are followers of Jesus Christ? 
We believe that through all the pain and suffering of life, the twists and turns, the dead ends, the loss of loved ones, the heartaches, the burdens, the, the bankruptcies, the, the places we went that we did not anticipate or want to go, we believe that God truly does have a plan through it all, and we trust him, and we persevere. So for this last week, I believe that Peter is telling us that the church, we are called to be patient perseverers. And yes, that is a word. It's a noun. I looked it up. Perseverer. That might not be a word that you would use a, uh, on, on a, a, a regular basis, but it's, it's a word. It's a noun. A perseverer. Someone who presses on and pers presses through times of hardship. They're resilient. Followers of Jesus Christ are resilient to the end because our hope is in God. So that's the main point. The main takeaway we'll get from our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5. Our faith perseveres because our hope is in God. Now let's read the passage together, and you can check me on this if this is truly what Peter is communicating to us. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. It recaps the whole letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that text will just preach itself, <laughs> but... But God has laid it on my heart that we should unpack this a little bit more and, and try to dig into these truths that are just so beautifully laid out for us. Paul or Peter reminds us that true believers persevere for three primary reasons. The first we see in verses six to seven, we trust in God's plan. We trust in God's plan. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, the fact that Christians suffer should not be a surprise to us. He even told us in 1 Peter 3, 17, suffering does come at times, and it's a part of God's plan. But take that in context. The Bible has so much hope and encouragement for us. One of those reasons is because we can look back and we can see the example of people who've gone before us, who went through hard times, hard stuff, really difficult times, and God was there for them. That phrase, mighty hand of God, Peter uses it specifically for a reason. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus. What happened in Exodus? The Israelites are in slavery in a land called Egypt. And they are working under taskmasters. They're getting beaten. Some of them are getting killed. They are being literally trodden down under people's feet, having to work. And, and, and they're basically treated like cattle. And God hears their prayers and cries for help. And he sends them a deliverer. Moses is the human deliverer. God ultimately is the one who's doing the delivering. 
And, and we're told several times in scripture, Exodus 13, 9, Deuteronomy 3, 24, 4, 34, 5, 15, 7, 19, 9, 26, 11, 2. That phrase, mighty hand, is used because God is a mighty God. And with his mighty hand, he reached down and he picked Israel up out of their slavery. And he delivered them from Egypt, from all of their false gods that they worshipped. God judged them with the ten plagues, right? He sent the flies. He sent the boils, the plague of the blood, the killing of the firstborn to show he had power over all of the fake gods that Egypt worshipped. But as he delivered them through the plagues, things actually got harder for Israel before they got better. With each plague, they got persecuted more. They got beaten down more. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not letting the Israelites go free and made life harder for them. And the Israelites said, what is going on? God doesn't care. What is he doing? Why doesn't he just let us go? And we see from the story of Exodus that God has a plan. He's going to do something that no one else could do. And he judges the enemy through plagues and he rescues his people out with a strong right hand. He leads them across the Red Sea. He literally parts the waters miraculously. So Israel can walk through on dry land. And then when the enemies try to follow, what happens? Kids, you remember? What happens when the, when the Egyptians try to follow the Israelites through the water? Crash. All the waves descend on them, and they were never to bother God's people again. That was just the start of their journey. The exodus. God is at work, so trust him. And when the Israelites complained that they didn't have enough to eat or drink, God provided, because that's what he does. You know, we're not too different from the Israelites. Might be a few thousand years removed, and... Thank God I've never been a slave. I pray that, that none of you have been, been a trafficking victim. Perhaps you have, but the point is God has a plan. He works through the hardship to deliver, most importantly, to deliver us from the sin that's in our own hearts. I'm not strong enough to save myself from my sin. I don't have enough grace and mercy and, and forgiveness. I, I don't have enough power to cleanse the evil out of my heart. I'm a proud person. I humbly stand before you and say, I am a proud person. And apart from the grace of God, I would stay in that pride. I can't rescue myself out of that. So God reached down by his grace and he showed me, Jesus is your hope for life. Turn from your sin, trust in him. He is the one. He is the savior. He is the greater Moses who can deliver all people out of the slavery of sin. But what does he deliver us to? He took the Israelites through the wilderness. They're following him. They've never been here before. They don't know the twists and the turns. The sun gets hot. They're lonely. They keep getting told about this promised land where everything's beautiful and they're going to have all their needs met, but they haven't been there. And Christian, that's where we are today. We're told about heaven and how amazing and beautiful it is. And God's preparing a place for those who love him. But I haven't been there. Have you? No. We're trusting the Lord. We're walking with him. But the good news is the God who is strong enough to rescue us, that same strong hand is guiding us. I was just talking to, to a brother this morning. We're praying about what is God's will? Is it door A? Is it door B? Let's pray about it because if he hasn't let us go in the past, he's not going to let us go in the future. Everything aligns according to his plan. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. 
He's the mighty hand. He's the sovereign one. He's got a plan that everything is going to work together for good and for his glory. So we trust him. Even when inflation goes crazy. Even when the world looks like it's about to go to war. Even when I'm not sure I can make rent next month. Guess what? God is not going to let go of his people. I follow him. I trust him. And I recognize I am not the answer to my problems, but, but Jesus is. And as I, as I humble myself and I trust him at the right time, what does Jesus do? Exalts you. Lifts you up. God didn't leave his people in slavery. He's not going to leave you either. He's going to lift you up. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be great and perfect and beautiful in this life. Friends, we're not home yet. We're not citizens of this world. We're, we're citizens of heaven for those who put their faith in Jesus. We are brought into God's family. We're part of God's kingdom. But the trajectory of our life follows the empty tomb. We died with Jesus. We are raised with Jesus. And we're going to keep raising up and raising up and rising up until that final day where we are rise, risen, raised? Yes, raised to eternal life. I don't know what you're going through this morning. Uh, some of you, I know some of the burdens that you're carrying, some of the struggles, some of the losses you've had in recent years. And, and I appreciate all you sharing about that so we can genuinely pray for you and help you and encourage you. We can't help you if we don't know what's going on. And, and I appreciate that honesty. But wherever you are, I want to encourage you. There is a, a, a time limit on the seasons of suffering. We don't suffer endlessly and endlessly and, and purposefully. There's a time limit. God brings us through the valley, but he brings us back out. You don't believe me? Look at the life of Jesus. He spent 40 days hungering and thirsting in the wilderness. 40 days. I could not go 40 days without food. Jesus did, and God, God kept him alive. The angels came and ministered to him at the end of 40 days, but 40 days, and that was it for Jesus' trial. When Jesus was on the cross, you and I will never understand the agony that he went through, but when he finished his suffering, when he had finished drinking the cup of God's wrath on sin, punishing all the sin that Jesus took on him on our behalf, what did he say? It is finished. Stunned. And then he gave up his life and laid it down. The suffering was over and Jesus ascended to heaven to, to take the crown that the risen king deserved to wear. There is a time limit. So that gives us hope for today. You might not feel like you're going to get out of this, but you will. And verse 7 tells us, so cast all of your daily anxieties on him. He cares for you. Your heavenly father cares for you. He cares what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. Better than anyone else. That word anxiety, it could mean worry. It could mean something you care about. It could be a burden, something that keeps you up at night. Maybe it's a person. Maybe you're anxious for, you're anxious for your kids. You're, you're anxious for a loved one. You're anxious for someone who's sick. You're, but that anxiety, if we just keep it up inside, will drive us crazy. We weren't meant to handle all of that on our own. We're meant to recognize this is a problem. I'm up against the wall here. Father, I need you to take this. That's something that an unbeliever cannot do because they don't know God as their father. So how can you give something to the father that's not your father? 
But because he is the father to every single person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus, we go to him with anything, anytime, day or night, constantly throughout the day. God, I need you. God, take this. God, please help me. And he cares and he knows. And by God's grace, I pray that our church will always be a safe place for people who don't have it all together. Like literally how you get into a church family is to admit you don't have it all together. I need Jesus and I need people to encourage me in my faith walk. And I'm trying to figure this out as I go along. Maybe you're in the middle of a really big struggle right now or you're like, you know what? I'm pretty good. I don't have any big prayer requests. I don't have any major needs. Great. Then look to the person next to you because I bet that they do. And that's the beauty of what, what happens when we walk alongside each other like this. So maybe some of us here need to confess, I've been trying to act like I have it all together. God, I'm sorry. That's pride. I do, I do not. Only Jesus did. Some of us might need to confess that I too quickly complain to others when things aren't going well rather than taking it to God in prayer. He needs to be our first resort. Prayer is our first, not our last resort. And maybe if we're honest, some of us might need to repent for not being a sympathetic listening ear to others. Oh, yeah, that person. Oh, they're always struggling, always going through something difficult. I just get kind of tired of listening to that. Or, or you know, like when we worked in student ministry, students will tell you how stressed out they are for their exams, for their history tests or something. They're like, just wait till you get to adulthood. You got no idea what stress is till you become an adult and, and a parent and all. But you know what? God cares about that student's test. Jesus cares. He wants to bear that burden. So should we. So we need to repent of even when we, do, we look down on the burdens of others. Like that's not a big struggle. It is. We help one another to trust in God's plan. And we persevere patiently in the storms of life because we trust in his plan. Here's the second thing that Peter teaches us. Stand fast in the faith. Right? So we trust in God's plan. And secondly, we stand fast in the faith. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Two commands, back to back. Why? Because you have an enemy, an adversary, the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour somebody. And if you missed last week, we saw in the first five verses of, of chapter five that we are sheep. We are the flock of God. Jesus is our shepherd. But we're just dumb sheep. We're trying to follow him. And, and, and he's leading us in the valley and in the, in the green pastures and where the water is. I don't know the way to go, but Jesus does. And so what do sheep do when they get proud and stubborn? They start to go their own way. And because God loves us, he calls out and he says, hey, you need to watch out. Because you have an enemy that wants you to wander. He wants you to get on your own. He wants you to doubt God's goodness and his mercy. If you don't know who the devil is, the devil is, is adversary. That's what, that's what devil means. But scripture tells us a little bit more that his name is Satan. He was a chief angel in the host of heaven, and he rebelled against God. And he took a third of the angels with him in rebellion against God. He's been God's sworn enemy ever since. And he's a defeated foe. Jesus defeated him at the cross. He holds no power over us. That doesn't mean he's not prowling, though. It doesn't mean he doesn't want to try to make you stumble and slip up. But he can't do anything to you that you don't give him access to. That's the secret about Satan. That's not so secret. He can't bring you down. But you know what? 
I can give him opportunities to mess with me. So for one, for example, Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober minded. You got to have a clear head. You have to have a, a clear vision for what God is doing. And you can't be under the influence of the world, of worldly ways of thinking. Because what happens when we have our thoughts on things that are of the world and not of things above? We stray from God's plan. We start trusting in ourselves. We sin. We fall short. I heard in the late 1960s, there was uh, this experiment done. It was called the marshmallow experiment. So kids, I think you would, you would like this experiment. So what, what Walter Mischel, the Stanford professor, and a series of his, his fellow professors did, they conducted these uh, experiments with hundreds of children around the ages of four and five years old. Maybe you've heard about this. They put them in a room, and they put a plate on the table in front of them with one marshmallow on it. They say, here's a marshmallow. We'll make you a deal. If you can hold off eating that marshmallow for 15 minutes and just wait here, when we come back, you can have two marshmallows. All right, but that's the catch. You got to wait 15 minutes. How many of you think the kids were able to wait the whole 15 minutes? Most of them were not. <laughs> Some of them just gobbled it up the second they left the room. Just so good. It's a free marshmallow. Come on. There's, there's, no, there's no fail here. Some of them waited a little bit longer, a few minutes here and there. and Oh, but the temptation got too strong. It's sitting right in front of them. They swallowed. Some were able to resist. They waited. And when the researchers came back, true to their word, they got a second marshmallow. Here's the interesting thing, why this study is important. Later in life, they followed up with those kids. Those who gave in right away to the impulse and ate the marshmallow, by and large, on average, they tested lower in their SAT scores. They struggled more with substance abuse, obesity. They didn't respond as well to stress. They didn't have as many social skills as those that were able to hold off and, and generally scored better in a number of other life measures. Because when we're impulsive and we just take what looks good right away, it sets a pattern for our life. Now, I'm not saying that to say, oh man, if I would have eaten that marshmallow, you know, my life is over. No, but I think it, it shows us what Peter is getting at here. To have a clear head, what are you thinking about? What do you put in front of you most days? Is it thoughts that are pleasing to the Lord? Is it the word of God? Is it the truth about the kingdom of God and who Jesus is? Or is it a bunch of junk from the world like fast food social media content? The average American spends seven hours online during the day. And what do most people do? They scroll. And they scroll. And they scroll. Just consuming. Not actively engaging, not changing the world. Just scrolling. We're checking out. And, and adults, you know, we, you might not do the smartphone thing, but if you sit in front of the TV for seven hours, that's basically the same thing. We're just kind of letting someone do the thinking for us. Peter says, hold on. We need to have a mind that is geared towards sobriety. We're thinking about what we're doing. We're thinking about what is going on in the world around me. What is God up to? And how do we join him in that work? 
Is making disciples something we do in our spare time? Or is this priority one? Showing people the love of God and Jesus in us. And here's the cool thing. God gives us help. He says, resist him. Be firm in the faith. I'm like, well, great, Jesus. You know, that, that's great. But that sounds really hard. Here's what he says. Don't look inward for the strength on this one. Look outward. He says, do you know that your brothers and sisters all throughout the world are going through some of the same stuff that you're going through? There are people in the family of God that are struggling, that are hurting, that are broke, that are mourning, that are struggling with sin. And when we look around and we see the story that God is weaving in his kingdom, using his people for his purposes, that lifts us up. Satan wants you to get isolated and be by yourself and check out. God says, step out and look around you. Let what I'm doing in other people's lives encourage you. That's why regularly we try to share testimonies through video, through small group, through someone reading a passage before you because God is at work in every single one of us. And I love hearing about it. I love hearing what he's doing because we're in this together. You're not hurting alone. You never were. And if you ever think that you are and no one understands you, at the very least, you understand your father in heaven understands you. And he has given you a gift before you even knew you realized or before you realized you needed it. You need a family. You need a community of believers to surround you and encourage you. Gospel community is essential to clinging to the word of God. It's essential to perseverance. No sheep is going to get to heaven who wandered by itself all of life. The sheep get to heaven because they follow the shepherd. When you follow the shepherd, you find yourself in a flock. The community is designed to protect. So you're not getting bit on by the wolves on the outside. We need flesh and blood relationships. We need to see the gospel really works. Is God good in the hard times of life? He is. And I can point people to verse after verse after verse that God is with us in suffering and the word of God is living and active. But you know what? If you share that verse with one of your neighbors and you say, hey, here's how I saw this come true. And you share about a time that you were hurting and suffering and God met you there and he met your needs. How much farther does that go? Because it's not some hypothetical thing on, on a page. So the word of God is living and active and changing people's lives. That is what our community needs. Does the gospel work? Look at these people who are genuinely caring for each other. And they're from all around the world. And they've got all different spectrums and values. But here's one thing. We love Jesus. And he has changed us. If you're here this morning and you think you can go it alone. I'd encourage you to look at the church and, and see. God knows that we can't. That's why he's already given us this for such a time in this journey. So whether you have tangible needs, you need groceries, you need supplies, you need yard work done, you need a car ride, you need someone to, to help tutor or watch your kids, or you need a job, I've already seen God work through our church for people to help each other with some of these tangible needs. It's awesome. It's not hypothetical. It's true love. People care for each other in the family of God. God cares about that test. God cares about the SCT. God cares about your sports. God cares about all of that. Now, maybe what you need is someone to encourage you in the word. You need a mature believer to help guide you and encourage you and pray for you. You need somebody that understands what you're going through and just walk with you. The church is here for that as well. 
We know that God is at work. We trust his plan. We're firm in our faith. We know the church helps us stay firm in our faith. And thirdly, here's what Peter tells us. One day, God will make all things right. One day, God will make all things right. It's not yet today, but he's doing a new thing. Do you see it? Do you see it around you and in the lives of the people around you? And, and the trajectory we're on where the kingdom of God descends to earth and God makes all things new. Here's what he said. After you have suffered for a little while, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. A little while is a little while. That's really deep, right? You needed a pastor to tell you that this morning. You couldn't have figured that out on your own. A little while is a little while. How long is eternity? Forever. <laughs> when you're going through stuff, it feels like forever, doesn't it? I have prayed this prayer, I feel like a hundred times, and God hasn't answered it. But we're still in the brief breath that is called life. And this life is a vapor that will vanish away. And then we will be in our permanent residence in heaven. And you will see Jesus face to face. If you are a child of God and your faith is in Christ alone as your savior. And you will know that it was all worth it. Every single ordeal you went through in this world was worth it when you see Jesus. Eternity is forever. So believers have an eternal perspective. Not all things are right yet, but God's making it that way. It's kind of like the game of golf. Golf is, is a growing hobby of mine that I'm not good at at all. But, it, but it's fun. And you know what I like about golf? No matter how many times it takes me to hit the ball, when the ball goes in the hole, I did it. <laughs> I finished the hole. And I move on to the next one. Now, don't talk to me about making par and all that. Okay, that's, that's irrelevant. Okay, just however many hits it takes you to get in the cup, there you go. I did it. I golfed, okay? I'm a golfer because I you know, have the, the bag of everything. My favorite word is mulligan, by the way. You <laughs> just get a do-over. But here's the thing. No matter how long it takes you to do one hole or the next hole, you keep going until you play the whole 18 holes. In the Christian life, the believer knows the only reason I'm on the golf course, or to say it better, the only reason I'm in God's family is because of God's grace. So no matter how long you've been hitting at that obstacle, no matter how many times you've been tripping over that sand trap of sin, guess what? You're exactly where God wants you because his grace has saved you and brought you here. Are you going to work towards and earn God's favor? I don't think so. He loved you and I, even while we were still sinners. What a good God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't heard that before, God loves you. And while we were still sinners, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, to die for our sins and take our place, to bring us into the family of God. It's a free gift. I didn't earn it. I accepted it. And I'm here by God's grace. So I'm not living for the moment. I'm, I'm not just focused on the suffering. I'm focusing on what is God doing? He saved me by his grace. He's working on me by his grace. And he's going to bring me home by his grace. He's called us to his eternal glory. Over in 2 Corinthians 4.17, the Apostle Paul says this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. 
So light momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. If someone were to look at your life, what do you put the most stock in? Where do you put the weight of your thoughts and your actions and how you spend your money and your time? Are you living for things of this world? Or are you living for the God who loved you, saved you, and is making you a new creation? The weight belongs to Christ. He is the glorious one, and we are in him. Here's the thing, though. Eternal glory is only in Christ. That little preposition makes a big difference. Because we are stepping out by faith and we trust Christ as our Savior, that says we are dead to our sin. Like when Christ died on the cross, dead to my sin. And when he rose from the dead, I'm raised with him, raised to eternal life. But it's only because I'm one with Jesus. The doctrine is called, if, if you were to look up Gruden, Grudem's systematic theology or a theology textbook, it's called the, the Doctrine of the Union of Christ. It's one of my favorite truths from Scripture. It means where Jesus goes, I go. The two of us have, have come together and we're never going to be apart. Thank you, God. Your grace is enough. Jesus, as long as you're with me in the battle, I'll be okay. Because the weight is for glory. It's not on this light, momentary affliction. And when we get to heaven and you enter God's presence and we're with him finally and fully and completely and physically, he will make all things right. Do you see those verbs? Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. Who want to be grateful for that? Who needs strength? I do. Who needs their steps to be established during the day? I do. Who needs to be restored? I do. And on that final day, when he makes all things new, it will completely, fully happen. Let me encourage you all. Whatever you're going through right now, God sees it. God knows it. Even the tears that you cried last night and no one else saw. If you're a child of God, he's watching over you. And Psalm 56 verse 8 tells us that he even catches our tears in a bottle. It's a metaphor, but what he's saying is God remembers every tear you've cried, every heartache that you have suffered, every rejection, every persecution, and on the last day, he will restore. He will give it all back 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times over. There's nothing we can suffer in this life that God's grace is not enough to make new. He's making all things new. He's undoing all damage. And that's why when we say the church of Christ, who are we? We're patient perseverers. We don't just persevere like, oh, fine. I guess I got to make it to the end, whatever. You know, anyone could do that. Anyone could be miserable to the end, but we're patient perseverers. All right, God, I trust you. I, I can have joy in this moment, even in this difficulty, even in the sorrows, because you are a God of grace who's doing amazing things and making all things new. And I can worship you. When we gather on Sunday morning and we worship together, what are we doing? We're saying God is bigger than all of this. Every song we sing is, a, is an anthem. Like they're singing in the World Cup right now. When their team scores, oh, have you heard those people? Singing, chanting, waving the flags, going crazy. Right now, this morning, you might not feel it, but what are we doing? We are waving the flag of the kingdom of Christ. We're saying Jesus reigns. 
Jesus is changing my life. There is hope. He's making all things new. He's working everything together for good. So we suffer, but we can suffer with joy. And when he brings us out of that pain, we give him thanks. We also give him thanks in the trials. So as I close this morning and we think through, how do we apply this? How do we really glorify God in our, in our suffering? I want us to think this past week. Remember last week? A couple days ago. I think you can remember. What opportunities came about where you could choose to rejoice in Christ? And this coming week, how can I be prepared in my heart that no matter what comes about, my focus is on Christ? Do you think maybe spending time in the word of God can help us be sober-minded and focused? Do you think spending time in prayer, casting those daily anxieties on the Father, will help? Some of us do not have freedom from our anxieties because we never actually give those anxieties to God. We go through all these coping mechanisms. How do I cope with stress? And how do I handle stress? How do I manage stress? Can I be honest with you? I can't manage stress. I give it to God. Otherwise, I go crazy. There's so much to worry about. How are we preparing ourselves this week to give that stress that comes to God? Who's one person you can share the good news of Jesus with? I know. They probably might reject you. And yet, is the point of sharing the gospel just to reach somebody for Jesus? Or is it also to glorify your Father in heaven? Because if that's the case, they can reject me all day long, and the Father's still pleased with me. So who's one person that I can share the gospel with this week? And we persevere Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then next week, let's gather together again and let's celebrate our God and what he's done and let's share those burdens of what's going on. And we pray for one another because we are patient perseverers. We trust in God. We are firm in our faith. Man. And we walk in his grace with the help that he gives until he makes all things right. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to reflect on this amazing God who gives us all that we need before we even ask or thank.